When you read the four Gospels, the truths about Jesus are on display in a variety of ways. The Gospel writers, in other words, don't set out to write their accounts of the Lord Jesus' life and say, here's the one way in which you can see the truth. You can see, for example, angelic revelations that are recorded in Luke 1 and 2 and in Matthew 1. Angelic revelations to Mary, to Joseph, to shepherds, truths of Jesus made clear through angelic declarations. You can also look at the miracles of Jesus. There are miracles in the Old Testament, but no Old Testament figures ever accomplished or saw the kinds of miracles and scope of miracles which Jesus performed. His wonders surpassed them all. And these, the quality and sheer number of these miracles are suggestive about the truth of who he is. Even the way Jesus teaches about the Old Testament is fascinating. He doesn't only proclaim that there will be a coming kingdom, but that in him and with him, the long-awaited kingdom has come. He talks about the Old Testament as those days of promise having met fulfillment in his ministry. That what he is doing... And what he will do will bring to pass those earlier expectations and prophecies. You could consider the titles Jesus uses for himself and titles that others apply to him. Titles like Holy One, Christ, Son of God, Son of David, Son of Abraham, and more. You could look at the claims Jesus makes about himself. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. All of these are a variety of ways, and not even all of them, but a variety of ways that the truths of Jesus are on full display in the Gospels. Here's one that's often understated. One way Jesus demonstrates his divine authority is by prophesying the destruction of the temple that was fulfilled in 70 AD. The 70 AD temple destruction was a massively significant event. And Jesus told his disciples decades earlier what to expect. Speaking with detail about what would lead up to that. And then in the generation of the disciples, the fall of that precious and sacred site. The prediction isn't even like the same kind of predictions the Old Testament prophets made. You see, the Old Testament prophets, they would warn of judgment and they would say, I have a word from God for you. Or thus saith the Lord. Here's what's different with Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to say, I have a word from God for you. The words of Jesus are the words of God. He doesn't say things like, thus saith the Lord. When Jesus speaks, thus the Lord saith. He has authority and demonstrates it by pronouncing a judgment which is then fulfilled on, of all places, the Jerusalem temple. You might have expected Jesus to say, you know, these pagan idol sites and these pagan temples around the empire, judgment's coming on them. Not one stone will be left on another in the temple of Zeus, the temple of Athena. They're coming down. I tell you, part of Jesus' speech that would have unnerved people and seemed incredibly offensive to the Jerusalem elite of the day, Jesus says of the temple stones in Jerusalem. Not one of these will be left on another. They will all come down. And these words are spoken on Tuesday of Passion Week. You can already tell because of where we are in Luke's gospel, there is not much that remains of Luke. 
And so just like all the Gospels near the end, they are focusing on a week-long period known as the Passion Week of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's the climactic days leading up to the cross and the resurrection. And when Jesus is teaching on this Tuesday of Passion Week, he prophesies something called the Olivet Discourse, and he does so right outside the temple, and he does so east on the Mount of Olives. In chapter 21.5, the temple discourse began, this Olivet Discourse. And what kinds of things are on the near horizon leading up to this temple destruction? Jesus wants his disciples to know several things that we've looked at. Number, number one is found in verse 8, false messiahs. Jesus says, you in your own generation will see people saying, I am he, but don't go after them. They're false. False messiahs were predicted in verse 8, as well as international skirmishes, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. The generation of Jesus' disciples would witness those things in verses 9 and 10. There would be disasters in nature in verse 11. There would even be persecution in verses 12 to 19. He told his disciples, there will be people who betray you, hand you over. There will be people who bring you in and arrest you, and you'll have to testify before governors and kings. It's remarkable to read those prophecies about persecution and then open the book of Acts and read Luke's account in Acts with Luke's gospel and see how Acts is bringing... Right before our eyes, the kinds of fulfillments Jesus said his disciples would face. It's like we're reading them in the lives of John and Peter and James and Paul. They're the ones experiencing exactly what Jesus said. And then in verse 20, all those things were leading up to this gathering of forces around Jerusalem. Verse 20 says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near or has now come at hand. Jesus' language would be fulfilled when the Romans destroyed the temple and the city in 70 AD. Now, how do we know that a local judgment was meant? It can be one, one way of reading Luke 21 for some Bible interpreters is to say, this is not about something on the near horizon of his disciples. These are about things that are in the far distant future from their day, even distant from ours. It's likely that a local judgment on the temple was meant, though, in Jesus' words for a few reasons. Verse 6, Jesus focused on the judgment on the temple. Days will come, he said, when there will not be left here one stone on another not thrown down. He's not talking about all the buildings around the promised land. He's talking about the temple in particular. And then in verse 7, we can see another reason. This discourse is an answer to a question. You see, the, in verse 7, the disciples asked him, well, what about these things? Tell us more. We would, we would be, it would be reasonable to see the answer he gives them tied to their question, which was a question tied to a pronouncement about a temple destruction. And then in verse 20, notice he names specifically the city of Jerusalem. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, in verse 21, he gives geographical instructions. Notice this in verse 21. Let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country try to enter it. Well, the reason those geographical instructions require a local setting or a specific judgment is because if you were outside Jerusalem, it would be unwise for you to head into it where all of the battle and tumult was happening. And if you were inside Jerusalem and had the chance to flee that local setting, good for you and the sooner the better. In verse 23, Jesus describes difficulties that make sense for a historical local judgment. Verse 23, he says, look, if you're pregnant 
Or if you're nursing infants, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for you. And that's because fleeing and traveling and moving hastily will be difficult with pregnancy and nursing young children. These are some examples of why this is a local judgment on the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus even uses language in verses 25 and 26 that prophets used about a judgment on a nation. An example from Isaiah 13 and many other places in the prophets show that sometimes an earthly judgment on a city or a nation was so significant and was, and was to be viewed rightly as a heavenly act that the heavens themselves were pictured as disturbed, moving and shaking. And so Jesus says in verses 25 and 26, there will be signs and sun and moon and stars. There will be people in verse 26 fainting with the foreboding of what's coming. And at the end of verse 26, the heavens will be shaken. Isaiah 13 and other passages in the prophets use language like this about local judgments with this apocalyptic language, an apocalyptic viewpoint. And we are meant to think of heavens being disturbed and powers shaken and signs and sun and moon and stars and feel disturbed by that. That was the purpose of such language in the prophets. It's the purpose of such language in the book of Revelation. Apocalyptic descriptions are meant to be disturbing. So if somebody were to listen to Jesus, and he's talking about the stones on the temple being brought down and not one left on another, we are to see that that is a significant, disturbing turn of events from the perspective of the Israelites. It's an act of heaven. In fact, the shaking of the heavens is a way of saying heaven has acted against this place. In verse 32, Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And that suggests that Jesus' disciples are part of the generation to see a local devastating judgment on the city. When the Gospels portray the truths about Christ, there are many ways his authority and divine claims and role and person are shown. One of the ways is in the Olivet Discourse, the divine authority of the Lord Jesus, who is King and Lord of all. The judgment of the temple demonstrates, for instance, that the claims that he made about himself is true. And the judgment on the temple demonstrates that his accusers and his enemies' schemes against him were in vain. The destruction of the temple is the fitting end to the fact that Jesus fulfilled the temple by laying down his body and blood. Think about that for a moment. What's the need for that building if Jesus on the cross has declared it is finished and the temple veil is ripped from top to bottom? The destruction of the temple or the taking down of these stones is the fitting end to a fulfillment, a fulfillment that has occurred. We are reconciled to God in and through Christ. Jesus is our ultimate high priest. He's our perfect sacrifice. He's a true temple. So the end of the temple system in Jerusalem is the outcome of what God accomplished in his son. The resurrection of Jesus is followed by his ascension, his enthronement in the heavenly places. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. This is his claim. Not only at the end of Matthew 28, verses, uh, verse 18, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus also claims to have all authority and to be the one who reigns by using language from an Old Testament prophet. In, in chapter 21, he says in verse 27, the Son of Man will be coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now that is not a statement first uttered on the lips of Jesus. 
That is actually a reference, a very clear allusion to an Old Testament prophet named Daniel. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, a scene is described. And it's very important that we know that in Daniel 7, 13, the language is of a scene in heaven. This is not a descent from heaven to earth that Daniel's about to describe. It's a scene of vindication and enthronement over creation. It's a heavenly proclamation of good news. Here's what Daniel sees. Daniel 7, 13, behold, with the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So I'd invite you to consider for a moment the importance of Jesus claiming this in the first century as true for him. Because of his cross work, his resurrection, his ascension. When does Jesus have dominion and kingdom and that all people's nations and languages should serve him? That's true now. When will he have an everlasting kingdom that has not passed away? Friends, that began in the first century ministry of Jesus. These are not realities that will be one day future. These are realities that have now entered into the, to the creation by the reigning Christ. The words in Daniel 7 are about going to the, with the clouds to the ancient of days. It was a picture of divine presence and authority and reign. The enthronement of Jesus is what Christians affirm. We are eager to declare, it's not that Jesus one day will be king. Jesus is Lord and Christ of heaven and earth. In what follows, you see in in Jesus' words to the disciples here, what follows is this claim in verse 27 that Jesus will have a heavenly confirmation or enthronement after his earthly finished work. So how does verse 27 relate to the cross? We could say that verse 27 is about the heavenly enthronement confirming his finished earthly work. The book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 9 and 10, he offered his body once for all, and then he entered into the heavenly places. Behind the one that is the true tent that the copies and the shadows of this earth pointed to, Christ Jesus reigns. So he applies these words to himself, and the destruction of the temple would demonstrate the rule of Christ. He is king, and he is overcoming his enemies. He is Lord, and he is subduing those who have come against him. The fulfillment of the temple was due to the cross work, and the judgment of the temple was due to Christ being the reigning Lord and King enthroned over all. Now, all of that, (laughs) all of that takes us up to today. We look now at the last part of Jesus's words. In verses 34 and following, he has talked about how previously this generation of disciples would see all the tumult and persecution and international upheaval and the desolation of Jerusalem, the surrounding of it by armies, the coming down of the temple. Jesus has fulfilled the temple. Judgment will come upon the temple. Everything can uh, be trusted that Jesus says. Why? Well, we ended last week's passage with verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away But my words will not pass away. How confident can they be that the things Jesus said are going to happen? Well, Jesus' words are indestructible. They can trust exactly what Jesus said to come to pass. And a reasonable question will now be, what should our lives be like? 
How should we live now in light of what is to come? And the relevance of this question for the believer comes in this way. The destruction of the temple was still a foreshadowing of the ultimate gathering of the nations and the judgment at the end. And any earthly deliverances in the Old and New Testaments were foreshadowing also the deliverance of his people when the nations are gathered before him at his return. And I'm going to suggest to you that in verses 34 and following, we have a shift in subject. A shift in subject. Jesus says, with a call to watchfulness, in verses 34 to 36, the following thing. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The Olivet Discourse... In Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, Luke 21, these are the three places where Jesus is teaching east of the temple about what's to come. And in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, Jesus is talking about near horizon events. But in each of the Olivet Discourse accounts, there is a transition point where he's no longer talking about what's on the near horizon for his people, but on the far horizon for his return. And I think when you look in Luke 21, 34, alongside Matthew and alongside Mark, Matthew and Mark's gospels make this even clearer. In verse 34, you see what Matthew calls that day or hour which no man knows. That language isn't used here in Luke 21, so we're helped by looking in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 also. There was a coming day, a day of the Lord, a day which no one knew the day or the hour. And that's a little different from what Jesus has said earlier in Luke 21. He gave them all kinds of things to be looking for. Things that were going to be coming up to the temple destruction specific international and pestilence and famine and persecution. And he even spoke about armies surrounding Jerusalem, and that's how you know its desolation is near. When he's talking about in verse 34, that day, something has shifted. And and I'm not going to go through any lengthy comparison with Matthew 24 and Mark 13. But it is to say, if you look at Matthew 24 and Mark 13, you will see a transition as well to a coming day that Luke 21 now is focusing on. One of the ways we can notice this is by looking at the word day itself here in Luke 21. Jesus hasn't used the word day in Luke 21 so far. He actually he, he talks about days in the plural. For instance, in chapter 21, 6, he spoke about days that will come. Days, plural. In verse 22, he spoke about days of vengeance. In verse 23, he spoke about those days. Because the events of what's coming for the disciples' generation will be days of devastation, vengeance, judgment, and desolation. But then Jesus doesn't speak of days in the plural anymore. He speaks about a day singular. In verse, 20, in verse 34, he speaks of that day which comes as a surprise, which no one can see coming. Chapter 21 is a warning against those who would use the teachings of Jesus to engage in end times speculation about the return of Christ. 
Because no one knows the day or the hour. Matthew and Mark teach this. And Jesus teaches in Luke 21, 34 and following that the coming day will come suddenly. Suddenly. We can distinguish then the day Jesus is talking about with this earlier period of time before. He says in verse 34, this following command, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down. The language watch yourselves is a caution. Be careful. Do you ever do that if you're going somewhere and you're with friends or family members and they say, okay, you know, it's been snowing and icing in Louisville this week. Be careful. Watch yourself. (laughs) Right? When you're driving and when we're going about our day, even when we're thinking about life in general, I'm just traveling far, you know, going uh, to this distant city. Someone might say, be careful. Watch yourself. And what we're asking for people to do is to keep your eyes open and live thoughtfully. Use discretion. Be wise. Watch yourselves. Watch yourselves means to pay attention, but it doesn't mean living fearfully. We have to to qualify this for a moment because Jesus isn't saying live fearfully lest your hearts be weighed down. He's saying watch yourselves, live wisely, be attentive. And he says watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down. I think part of what Jesus is calling them to pay attention to is the state of their hearts. Watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. This is the same call that the wise writer in Proverbs tells his readers to guard your heart. To keep an eye on the state of your heart. Because from the heart is the wellspring of life. Living watchfully doesn't mean living fearfully. Being watchful or attentive to your heart means to show care about the state of your soul. In other words, you want to be mindful that you have a spiritual life and you want to attend to it. You want to watch it. You want to watch yourself. You want to pay attention to this because what you know as a believer in Jesus is that your spiritual life affects everything else in your life. So it's not as if Jesus is trying to distract you away from other things that matter more by saying, pay attention to the state of whether your heart is weighed down by the things of the world. He knows that the state of your heart affects everything. So his his exhortation is, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. Because if we don't attend to this, if we don't pay attention to this, the things of this world will occupy the center of our heart. Your heart will be occupied with something. Your heart will be enamored with and consumed with and prioritize something. And Jesus knows if we do not attend deliberately, purposefully to the state of our spiritual life, other things in this life will win the affection of our heart. It will win our focus and the things of this life will weigh it down. Watch yourselves, he says. Lest your hearts be weighed down and with several things weighed down. Dissipation, drunkenness, and cares of this life. Now, I don't think I, I don't remember the last time I ever used the word dissipation in a sentence aside from reading the Gospels. This might not be a word that we would use in conversation typically. Something that's called dissipation, it's the result of something descending through squandering. Dissipation is the outcome of descending into sin in a biblical sense. 
When the Bible speaks about dissipation, it's telling you that this is what has resulted from squandering or descending in some kind of sexual or drunken way. Someone's living in dissipation. They have descended and squandered their spiritual condition. They are enamored with and consumed by sexual sin and drunkenness. You might consider that dissipation. This could be confirmed by the very next word, dissipation and drunkenness. Those two probably go together. In fact, that second word is probably an illustration of the former situation. Dissipation or a descent into what? Well, a lack of sober-mindedness. Drunkenness refers to having a mind that's been dulled by substances. This happens not only with excessive drinking, it also happens with doing drugs. When our minds are dulled by substances like drugs and alcohol, our ability to do what is wise is severely hindered altogether. So when Jesus says, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down, the kind of attentiveness we need to have in our spiritual life isn't an attentiveness that's helped by drunkenness. Instead, it's hindered by it. Jesus warns against it because we can't obey his command in a state of dissipation. It would be like saying you can act obediently by acting disobediently. That makes no sense at all. He warns them about having your hearts weighed down and by the spiritual state of your eyes and clarity of life being obscured by other things you are doing. Jesus doesn't want your mind dulled by substances. He wants your mind clear so that you can walk wisely, speak wisely, live wisely. Not just because of your life, that's included, but also because we're called to love neighbor. And living in a state of dissipation or drunkenness is not caring for one's soul. It is not loving toward neighbor. He also says there in a third phrase, the cares of this life. The cares of this life. That word cares can mean the worries and anxieties in life. And I wonder what you've come in today worried about. What kinds of anxieties are currently on your heart? What in life right now is burdening you? Jesus knows that our heart can feel very weighed down. You might have come today on February 6th feeling very weighed down when you came in these doors. Weighed down by the anxieties of life. Why is it though that the things of this life weigh us down so much? And I think it taps into this deep desire in our life to have security and assurance. We want to know that things are going to be okay. We want to know that it's going to be okay for us and for those we care about. We want security for our life. We want assurance. We want control. We want clarity. And the anxieties and stresses of this life are full of the unpredictable and the uncertain. And it can weigh you down because your mind can be committed to those matters in the core of who you are. We want to know what to anticipate. We want to know what's on the the bend up ahead. And Jesus says that the cares of this life can weigh your heart down and keep you from being watchful. Watch yourselves, Jesus says. Seek first the kingdom of God, he would say, right? In Matthew chapter 6. Because when our lives are not focused on Christ, his glorious person and work, the kingdom that is everlasting, and the age to come that our life will usher into. Friends, the things of this world can so weigh us down that the news and social media and all of the the rumors and accusations around the world about all sorts of things, that can become the only things we're thinking about. We live in a world where there is plenty of things to be worried about and to be anxious about from an earthly perspective. 
And Jesus is so wise here to say to us, you've got to watch yourself because if you're not careful, you will find your heart so weighed down by these things. And I wonder if that's you today. If you feel so deeply burdened and overwhelmed. Jesus says, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And then that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. The day will be sudden for all, but it won't be a snare for those that are Christ's. He wants the people listening to his words to not have that day come upon them and they be caught like an animal that is caught by a predator. They don't want to be in a snare or a trap. The return of Christ is something the believers are hoping for, longing for. We, we declare and proclaim the return of Christ in the future. We look for his glorious consummation of the work he's inaugurated. But if the worldly concerns take up our view, then our anticipation and longing for his return will diminish. In Luke chapter 18, I'm sorry, Luke 8 verse 14, in Luke 8, 14, Jesus says that there can be those who hear the word and go on their way and are choked by the cares of life. The cares and riches and pleasures of life. And the seed sown among them does not bear fruit. You see, Jesus wants you and I to live fruit-bearing lives. And you know what we need to have fruit-bearing lives? A vibrant, cultivated spiritual life. With the people of God. With the word of God and prayer before God, singing songs unto God and with the people of God. We need the ordinary means of grace that God uses to keep us going one foot in front of the other. Because if we are not careful and if we are not watchful, the cares of this life can overwhelm and overcome. He doesn't want the day that is to come to suddenly and entrap the people. He wants them to be prepared and longing for it. He spoke already of this way in Luke 12. In Luke 12, 39, he says, If the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he wouldn't have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So that's the sober-minded observation in the text. He's coming at an hour we do not expect. And in chapter 17 of Luke, he says in verse 36, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. What were they doing? They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage, going about life. And then the flood came and destroyed them. Likewise, Jesus said, just as in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, going about life. But then Lot went out from Sodom and fire and sulfur rained from heaven and there was judgment. Jesus says, think about those Old Testament judgments. So it will be when the Son of Man is revealed, he says. In other words, those earthly local judgments are foreshadowing the end gathering of the nations before the Son of Man at His return. I think the global scope of this is affirmed also in verse 35 of our chapter today. Look in chapter 21, 35. For it, that day, it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. It's a comprehensive judgment. 
Another reason here with this imagery to affirm the second coming that's in view. The suddenness was even heard in our scripture reading today. We heard from 1 Thessalonians 5. And in verse 2, Paul says, You yourselves know fully the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Jesus himself uses that imagery in Luke 12. You yourselves know fully the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Not days, plural. The day. The day of the Lord that comes to end the things of this former life. It also sounds like in verse 35 here, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 24, 17 says, Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. And Jesus is saying this day is going to come suddenly like a snare, like a trap. And it's going to come upon all who dwell on the earth. The inhabitants of the earth ought to beware that they have only focused on the cares of this life. They've lived for themselves and for the things around them. They have not attended to the state of their heart. They have not considered what they are made for and who Christ is. So his closing exhortation to them in verse 36, but stay awake at all times. Well, all of us do some sleeping from time to time. So you can't mean physically. Stay awake at all times. Who can do that? You know, eventually your body will break down and you will, you will collapse. <coughs> he must mean spiritually. There is not a physical wakefulness required here. It's a spiritual wakefulness. He's wanting to think of their lives as awake to the glorious kingdom truths and living in light of that. I wonder today if you're going through life completely asleep. And what I mean is if you've been dulled by the fleeting pleasures of this age and the cares of this life and they've so weighed down your heart, you would not consider yourselves to have a heart or mind awake to the things of the gospel. Friend, today can be a different day. What you're hearing from the Lord Jesus is what you and I were made for, not to have hearts devoted to the passing things of this age, but to be fully awake in heart and mind unto Christ. He says, stay awake at all times praying. One way to connect the praying to that command, stay awake, is that the praying is a way in which our wakefulness is expressed. It's a way in which our wakefulness is cultivated. You can't live a wakeful life without a prayerful life. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Stay awake at all times, praying that you will have strength. Earlier in Luke 18, he gave an example of a persevering widow. And in Luke 18, it tells us in verses 7 and 8, Won't God also give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? No, I tell you, he'll give justice speedily to them. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And one of the ways we demonstrate faith that the Son of Man will see is that faith is expressed in dependence and prayerfulness to God. This is what the faithful want. This is what the wakeful will do. The wakeful are those who look to God. And when our hearts are looking unto God, friends, that is a posture of prayer. Whether we're praying for something specific, offering praise to God, expressing lament and sorrow to God, interceding for someone else's needs, any of these expressions of our heart toward God, it is a posture of prayer and it is an expression of wakefulness. Friends, you need to wake up this morning to stay awake in life, that you would go through your days, day by day, week by week, attending to the state of your soul. Your spiritual life affects all of life. Stay awake at all times, praying, but for what? Well, he gives a couple examples here. That you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. And 
to stand before the Son of Man. This is the content of what Jesus says they're to be praying about. That doesn't exhaust everything, of course, but it's a couple things on their minds. Now, what is he talking about here to his disciples escaping these things that are going to take place? I think this is Jesus reverting back to some near events. After all, his disciples are going to be living through some decades of tumultuous times. All kinds of international upheaval, disasters in nature around them. They're going to be persecuted and opposed. And Jesus says, you need to pray for strength. You need to pray for strength that you will escape and be delivered. Not be overcome and fall under the judgment of these things. Instead, that you would escape these things that are going to take place. But see, that's not all that Jesus is wanting them to concern themselves with. However, attending in prayer to earthly matters is by no means wrong. Jesus teaches his disciples in Matthew 6 to say, this is, uh, to say give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Both physical and spiritual needs. Jesus then, at the very end of verse 36, I think goes all the way to the end with them. No longer something merely at 70 AD. They need to pray that they will stand before the Son of Man. And I think that's in view of the day that's to come, that coming judgment and return. Now, what would it mean to stand before the Son of Man at the judgment? There's a few Old Testament passages that I think help us here. It tells us in Psalm chapter 1, verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Think of that image for a moment. The wicked won't stand. Jesus is wanting his believers to pray with a view that they will stand. Why? What would standing mean? Well, if the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, that's Psalm 1-5, that must mean not standing in judgment equals condemnation. They're not welcomed or vindicated in the presence of the Lord Jesus. They rather receive the judgment of condemnation on that last day. They will not stand to be welcomed or reconciled and justified before Christ. It is different for the righteous. We're told in Malachi chapter 3 verse 2, Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Chapter 4, verse 2, you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings and you shall go out like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. I think this means that when the Lord Jesus returns and the nations are gathered before him, The wicked will not stand in approval and welcome at the divine judgment. But we will. The people of God are his. And we will belong to him forever. And we will stand before the Son of Man. Because we are in Christ Jesus united to him now through faith. Friends, to live a wakeful life is to have an eye toward the things of Christ. And to know that on that last day, when Christ Jesus returns and the nations are gathered before him, we will not be sent away to be tread down with the wicked. We will stand before the Son of Man because we belong to him. He has purchased us soul and body on the cross. He has satisfied the judgment of God. The the people of God will never be condemned on that last day because the good news of the gospel is not news for a season. It's eternally good news. One preacher put it this way, if if there would ever come a day 
in the millions of years that are to come, when the righteous would one day be condemned, then the gospel isn't good news. The gospel is good news if it secures my eternal standing with God in Christ. And that when Christ Jesus comes, we need not fear his coming. We live wakefully for his coming. We anticipate and long for the kingdom of God to come with all of his fullness and power and glory. We long for that because Christ Jesus is our savior and we will not be condemned. We will stand before the son of man on that day. After these words, in verses 37 and 38, Luke summarizes the scene. And every day he, Jesus, was teaching in the temple. But at night, he went out and lodged on the Mount of Ol- called Olivet. If we've wondered in Passion Week, what's Jesus doing throughout the days leading up to his arrest? What's he doing each day in Jerusalem? Luke is helping us here see each day, you know where he's going? He's going to the temple. He's going to the temple to teach. He's going to the temple to be with people. He's going to the temple to answer questions, even to face some of the snares of his enemies, which he successfully evades at every time and shows wise answers in response. Every day he's going to the temple. But see, Jesus doesn't own real estate in Jerusalem uh, in the days of his Passion Week. So where is he going to lodge? Well, like many people who live elsewhere, you travel to Jerusalem and you stay outside the city at night. A lot of homes would already be filled that could even house guests and travelers. Jesus here is staying east of the temple on the mount called Olivet. And then in verse 38, And early in the morning, all the people came to the temple to hear him. Why is such a crowd and swelling of population going on? Because Passover is at the end of the week. It's not just any week of the year, you see. This is the Passover week. Jerusalem would swell multiple times its size during the day. So many people had made pilgrimages to the city. And Jesus is going to leverage all of that occasion and all of the numbers of those crowds to proclaim the good news and the kingdom and answer questions to the crowds, even those who had come to oppose him. Early in the morning... All the people came to the temple to hear him. I love this line in verse 38, the end of this chapter. Early in the morning. I mean, you could go to the temple at any point during the day, but these people want to hear from Jesus and they don't want to miss a moment. So you know what they do? They say, we got to get up early in the morning, honey. We got to get up and we got to get there to the temple because you know who's there and you know he's been there these days. We know he'll be there again. We're going to get up early and we're going to go and, and it's not even just a few. Look who's doing this in verse 38. It says all the people. Now that's hyperbole to make a large point. So many people got up as soon as they possibly could to get to this particular place to hear him. They weren't there for just any old reason. At the end of verse 38, why do they go? Because the Pharisees were there and the Sadducees were there. No, those groups were there too. They came to hear Jesus. And they got there as quickly as they could to stand among so many who wanted the same thing. Friend, maybe you're coming here this morning and your heart is weighed down. And you know you're not living a wakeful life. You know you're not attending to the spiritual state of your heart. You may have been living in full rebellion against Christ. This can be a different day. The Lord Jesus calls you to him. He summons you to him to recognize that the gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John portray his true authority and his divinity and humanity on full display. And don't miss how this temple destruction prophecy fits with all of that. He is Lord and King of heaven and earth. What should that mean for us? It means you and I need hearts directed unto Jesus. 
We need to grow together, walk together, and gather with all the people to hear Jesus. I want to tell you, friends, what we're doing today. We're fulfilling verse 38. We got up. We got dressed. We gathered together because Christ, through his word, speaks to his people. And what we realize is in verse 38, we need the Lord Jesus to shepherd us through his word in our hearts that we might grow in wisdom on this day. That's what we're doing on the Lord's day. We're gathering together under the word of God that the Lord might care for us. And the Lord honors that. The Lord blesses that. The Lord loves you. Our hope is what the Nicene Creed says. He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. Whose kingdom Whose kingdom shall have no end? Praise God.